Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, Two-Footed Podcast on Tuesday, the 28th of September, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, that's a virtual privacy network, which allows you to go online, change your location, access things like American Netflix or anything you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Check out LibertyShield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And lastly, do remember to check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops over on Etsy. Just download that Etsy app onto your phone. There's loads of stuff on Etsy anyway that you might want to peruse. But when you're there, give a search for EPL Index or Anfield Index, and there's lots of good merch there. Right, folks. One game in the Premier League last night, Crystal Palace won, Brighton won. Wasn't as exciting a game as I had hoped it would be. Maybe the pressure got to Brighton a little bit, knowing that if they won, they would go top. Palace obviously still in the early stages under Patrick Vieira, not wanting another defeat, looking to get a decent result and get another point on the board. 1-1 was a fair result on the balance of play. I thought Palace early on looked really lively. Conor Gallagher in particular, great drive in midfield. He does just give them something different as someone who can break the lines with the ball at his feet. He's a decent passer, but his real strength is picking the ball up and carrying it and carrying it pace, attacking the space in front of him, forcing his way through the defensive line and causing a little bit of chaos in a back four. He did that repeatedly yesterday. He created an early chance. Um, then Palace had a good chance for Edouard. Well, a half chance for Edouard. A little bit of a snapshot. Jordan Ayew, again, letting Palace down at times. The guy looks completely shorn of confidence. And it's going to become more and more of an issue for Crystal Palace. Now, last night he missed 
a golden opportunity to put the game to bed. But that came after Wilf Zaha had put Palace one up from the penalty spot. Gallagher picked the ball up, drove into the area. And Leandro Trossard just kind of threw himself in the way and hip-checked him, knocked him to the ground, no attempt to play the ball, 100% the correct decision to give a penalty. Zaha steps up, no mistake, finished with a plum, 1-0 Palace. And on balance of play in the first half, they probably had deserved it. Danny Welbeck had missed a great chance for Brighton. Really poor defending from Joel Ward. Welbeck got his inside seam, got through on goal and fluffed his shot. He was complaining afterwards that his leg got clipped. There was physical contact because it's a physical sport. Get yourself up, put your big boy pants on and man up, Mr. Welbeck. Um, I did think Brighton's team selection let them down. They went very much empty shirts in midfield. That cost them. They had to make an early change at half time to bring off Dan Byrne and bring on Alzetti. Alzetti got, Alzetti got hurt within 15, 20 minutes of coming on, and Jakob Motor came on. I thought he did make an impact. In the middle of the park, his ability to drive and attack with the ball, really, really impressive. To their credit, Brighton did keep going. They never really let up. They needed a defensive error to get them back in the game. Mark Wehi, who had been excellent throughout the game and has been all season, Misjudged the flight of the ball and I think thought Vincente Gaeta was higher than he was. Gaeta was on his heels when Gwehi let the ball run through. Mopé was onto it in a flash. It's a tremendous finish. It's a bouncing ball and he lifts it perfectly over Gaeta into the net. 1-1, 95th minute. And for Brighton, this is... This is a bit of revenge on, on Palace for last season. If you remember last season when the two sides met in Brighton, Brighton absolutely battered them and should have got the win. But Crystal Palace came back late goal from Benteke to win them the game in the 95th minute. Was, I think they had about three shots in the game, Palace, that day. Two of them went in. This is this is payback for Brighton. Getting a point. I think they deserved a point overall. I think if you look at the numbers from the game, you know, just even the basic numbers, both sides had eight shots. Brighton had four on target. Palace had three. Brighton had 54% of the possession. Brighton had five corners. Palace had six. It was a very, very even game. There was a little bit of hesitancy in both sides. And I think... Like I said earlier, a bit of pressure on Brighton. Not pressure, but that kind of expectation if we could go top. I think if they'd been offered sixth after six games, they would have taken it, though. And for Palace, they're still finding the way early under Patrick Vieira. But this is the third draw to go with the one win. So six points is not a bad return. They're level with Wolves. Their goal difference is letting them down a little bit. They need to need to just get more, more thrust and attack. I mentioned Ayu, and he had a golden opportunity to win them the game. Gallagher picked, Gallagher picked the ball up midfield, drove through the centre of the park, gets taken out by Cucurella. The ball breaks to Edward. Edward drives the centre-backs, draws the defender, slips the perfect pass to Ayu. And he just makes an absolute pig's ear of it. This guy 
scored one goal in total last season. He's out of form. He's really struggling. Really struggling with his confidence. His touch looks off. His movement is not as sharp as it used to be. He's never been as talented as his brother. But what he always had was he had great movement. And he had a self-belief that he, his talent probably didn't warrant. Like he had a belief in himself that he was a, a very special player. When, you know, he's a good player, but he had the belief of, well, I'm, you know, I'm Lionel Messi. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot from here. He's not, you're not that guy. You just, you're not quite that guy. But those things are gone. The movement isn't there. He's, he's standing about a lot. He's waiting for the ball. He's not making the bursts in behind. And last night was a little bit concerning because obviously Brighton played with a 3-4-2 uh, to start. Sorry, 3-4-3 to start. And you've got Cucurella at left wing back who's very, very good attacking. An aggressive defender, but sometimes a vacant defender, as in he's just not there. He'll be caught too high up pitch. You've got Dan Byrne playing left side centre back in the three. And yes, Dan Byrne has played left back, but he's a little bit lumbering. He's not always the quickest to react. He's very slow on the turn. And you were just looking for AU to play on his shoulder and spin into the corner and create that bit of width and drag him, drag Dan Byrne out into those channels and then get the ball across because you'd have Zaha and Eduard 2v2 against the other two Brighton centre-backs. And while I fully admit Lewis Dunk's a good player, there's no question, and Shane Duffy has surprised me this season. He's playing quite well. They're both great in the air. Neither are very quick. Neither are very nimble. And if you can get the ball to feet to Eduard or Zaha against either of those two, they should be able to beat them one-on-one and get their shot away. But Ayu just wasn't making those runs at all. I had hoped that we would see Michael Elise come on. I think that's where Elise will play when he gets into the team once his back is up to speed and he's up to speed. I think he will play that right-sided forward role because AU looks like a guy who needs to come out of the team. One goal in his last, what are we now? 41 games. That's really not good. And this isn't the first time he's had a season like this. You look back at the first season he was with Palace in 18-19, two goals in 25 games. He is a streaky player. Like, he'll grab you 13 goals one year and then three the next. You know, that kind of 11 goals one year, two the next. Nine one year, one the next. It, you can't really rely on him, especially if he's going to be a starting player. I do think he could be a game changer off the bench with that pace and movement. But right now, he's a, he's a negative impact player. It's something Patrick Vieira will need to address. Speaking of needing to address things, Spurs need to address some stuff and they need to address it very, very quickly. So they have lost three Premier League games in a row. They have conceded three goals in all of those games. To Crystal Palace, that's a bad result. To Chelsea, fair enough, it's Chelsea. They're really good. You would have expected them to beat Spurs. But to lose 3-1 to an Arsenal team who have glaring weaknesses through the centre of their team, 
who are still getting to know each other. It's a very new Arsenal team. A lot of new pieces. Even the players that have been there a while haven't played a bunch. Like Partey, who was injured last season for the, for the most part. Saka, still very young. Odegaard was only there half the season. Smith Rowe, still very young. That defence, there's two brand new players there in Tommy Asu and, and Ben White. So not only are they getting to know each other, they're getting to know the others as well. Gabriel, who missed chunks of last season with injury. And Kieran Tierney, who again has missed chunks of seasons with injury. You've got a new goalkeeper. You've got Granite Jack attacks in midfield. You've got Aubameyang up front, who has been fairly poor for, what, 14 months now? So, for Spurs to go into that Arsenal game and perform the way they did, and normally I'm not a big fan of Jamie Carragher's analysis. I think sometimes he gets himself a little bit lost and goes off track, but I thought yesterday on Monday Night Football, he did some excellent analysis. He did a really good piece on Manchester United defending corners. If you haven't seen that, he's got a link of it up on his, uh, link to the YouTube video up on his Twitter page. He did a piece on Brentford Liverpool, which I didn't think was great because he continually said Brentford created overloads, but then said they weren't looking to target the back post, when in truth they very clearly were looking to target the back post. Uh, he completely ignored Jordan Henderson's part in the second and third goals. And, I mean, you could point a finger at him in, in terms of the first goal as well. He should get into a better position. He should get in front of Tony, sort of half-arsing his way back. Um, but the second and third goals, his parts are just glaring, and Carragher ignored them. So I didn't think that analysis was good. But his, his analysis on Tottenham, was excellent. Tottenham's midfield specifically. So he pointed out something that I think a lot of people who've watched a lot of Nuno's teams over the years, whether it was the Valencia team, the Porto team, his team at Wolves, people have noticed this over the years and it's become a glaring issue with Spurs, especially after this performance. He has no idea how to construct a midfield. So, on Sunday, Spurs played 4-3-3. And their midfield three was Deli Ali, Tangai Andambele, and Pierre-Emile Hoysberg. All three very good players. Deli, at his best, great player. Andambele, potentially great player. Two of them haven't performed well in well over a year, but have shown really promising signs this season. The issue is, when you play a three, you can only really play one of them. Because they both want to break forward into attacking areas. They both want to join the attack. And against Arsenal, rather than take it in turns and try and you know, you go, I stay, I go, you stay. They were just both going. And Carragher highlighted two instances within the first minute where there was at least 25 yards between Heusberg as the deepest midfielder and either of the other two who had both joined the front line. 
And Spurs' shape looked like a 4-1-5 with an enormous gap in midfield. And if you watched a lot of Nuno's Wolves, that would often be the case. They would have this enormous gap between their attack and their midfield. Now, sometimes that was because he was pushing the wing-backs on so high. And oftentimes he'd even let both midfielders sit. Or what you'd end up is you'd have a back three, one midfielder sat in front of them, another midfielder 20 yards forward, and then 20 yards ahead of that you'd have like a front five with the wing backs shoved really high and the front three. When it was a midfield midfield three and a front two he was playing, you would have the third midfielder joining that. You would always have a front five. Nuno sets his team up to be compact defensively. But when they attack, it's very rudimentary stuff. It's a lot of long balls. It's a lot of picking up second balls. And the problem with picking up second balls is you need runners coming on to that. You don't want them with their back to goal as that long ball is coming. And what we saw against Spurs was Davinson Sanchez and Eric Dyer routinely launching long balls towards Harry Kane with Ali and Endombele oftentimes beyond Kane. Now, whether they're breaking in case of a flick-on or what, only Nuno and those players will know. But when Harry Kane is playing that badly, putting in that little effort, there aren't going to be flick-ons. Ben White dominated him in the air. Ben White might be the worst centre-back in the league aerially. And he dominated Harry Kane in the air. Because Kane just didn't want to be there. Kane has looked like this since coming back into the team. He looks like a guy who doesn't really want to play at the moment. But Tottenham are stuck with him. Which means he must play. Because you can't have one of your best players not playing. Even if he's a little bit unhappy. So he's going to play. And that's fine, because he will get goals. He generally starts season slowly anyway. He looks like he's carrying a bit of extra timber this time around, but that'll, that'll work his way off. You've got Son, you've got Brian Hill, Bergvine Mora, so you've got your, your attacking players sorted. He hasn't yet figured out the defence. He hasn't seemingly realised that Christian Romero is by far the best centre-back at the club, and Eric Dyer is by far the worst centre-back at the club. But eventually you'd imagine he will sort out that back that back line, and it'll be either Emerson or Tanganga, Romero, Sanchez or Roden, or maybe Tanganga moves centrally, and Regulon at left-back. That's fine. So you've got that, you've got the front three, great. In midfield, the players that they've got, Heusberg, Skip, Winks, Endembele, Lacelso, Delielli. They are six good players. Some of them are very good. And I would say that that group is one of the stronger midfield groups in the Premier League. The issue is finding the balance between three of them. So he's tried Endembele and Ali together. It doesn't work. I don't think Endombele and Lacelso will work as, par- as two parts of a three either. 
Now, La Celso's more willing to sit than than Ali or Andembele, but he's also very bold dominant, and he needs the ball to be effective. He's tried Winks, Heusberg, and Skip. It was a mess. He's tried a double. Oh, they've tried a double pivot this season with Heusberg and Winks. It, it didn't work. Mourinho tried it last season a couple of times. Well, it didn't work. Skip gives them a dynamic ball-winning presence. Heusberg gives them control and shielding of the defence. So I think right now it needs to be those two plus one. Now, admittedly, that will mean... Because the three most talented are Endombele, Ali and Lacelso. Admittedly, it means two of them can't play. If you're playing a three... You can only have one of those three, in my view anyway. Against bad teams, you can have two of them, as long as one of those two is willing to be a little bit more conservative. And you're probably better off with Lacelso plus one of the other two. There is a way around it, which is to move to a diamond. Now, again, I don't think you can play all three. I think you'd want to go Heusberg is the deepest one. Endembele or La Celso with Skip in the engine and then Delhi as the 10. Or La Celso as the 10 if you want to use him there either. Position he's played many times, position he's very good in. But the balance in midfield has been appalling for Spurs in the last three games. And they got away with it against City because they largely sat in and counterattacked. They got away with it against Wolves because, again, they largely sat in and counterattacked. It didn't work against Watford, and they were quite fortunate to get out there with a 1 0 win. But against Palace, who let them have the ball, they got exposed, they got opened up on the counter. Against Chelsea, who let them have the ball, they got exposed, they got opened up on the counter. And Arsenal realised very early on, even though Arteta is a possession first manager, he realised early on, this lot's midfield doesn't work. So Arsenal sat that little bit deeper and just counted them to death. And you look at the Arsenal goals, the Smith-Rowe goal comes from a turnover. Quick break. Fine Saka on the right wing. Fine Smith-Rowe making the break. And they've got another spare man coming in behind him. And there's the goal. The Aubameyang goal, again... They press out of position. There's a massive gap behind. The defensive shape isn't set because Spurs had been in possession and given the ball away. And Arsenal basically counterattacked them and beat them and, and score again. The second one's not really a counterattack, but again, there's no defensive shape. There's no defensive help from the midfield. And these are things, this is something Nuno needs to sort out really, really quickly. Because if he doesn't, he's not going to last at that club. Because their fans are very much fed up at this point. In 2019, Spurs made it to the Champions League final. And since then, the club has been pretty much in a consistent 
source of turmoil, a, consi- a consistent state of turmoil. You had Pochettino getting sacked, what, four months after the five months after the final? Mourinho comes in. Completely different style of football to Pochettino. Completely different style of management. Completely different personality. Not somebody who fosters the closest of relationships with all his players. Has his favourites. Gets close to them. And then they control the dressing room for him. At Chelsea... He was very close to Lampard, very close to Drogba, very close to Terry. They were the three dominant personalities in the room. So he sidled up to them. He got them on board. They controlled the dressing room for him. At Inter Milan, Zanetti, Samuel, Etu. All of them men would still run through walls for Mourinho. Three most dominant personalities in the room, all on his side. Control the dressing room. Real Madrid. Xabi Alonso. Iker Casillas. Sergio Ramos. Three most dominant personalities in the room. They control the dressing room. Initially he was close with each of them. Then he fell out with Iker Casillas. Then he fell out with Alonso. That caused the rift. The dressing room turned against him. And we saw what happened when he went back to Chelsea. He had Terry there. He got Cahill on board. And he got Eden Hazard on board. And then he fell out with Eden Hazard. And by then, Terry's influence was waning because Terry was no longer the player he had been. But Hazard was very close to that younger generation of player, and especially the likes of Thibaut Courtois. There was a falling out between Mourinho and Courtois. The dressing room went against him. Not all of it, but some of it. Once he doesn't have full control of the dressing room and doesn't have that full buy-in, Look what happens. He goes to Manchester United and he can't get Paul Pogba on board. Because Pogba wants to be pandered to and Mourinho does not pander. Pogba wants to be treated with kid gloves. Mourinho doesn't do that. So him and Pogba clashed heads pretty much straight away. He never fully got the dressing room on board. And when things went against him, the first time they really had a bad run of results, because remember, the first year they won the Cup double, the League Cup and the Europa League. The second year they finished second. That third season, that was the first run of games where things went against them. And he had no way to turn it around because he didn't have buy-in from the dressing room because he didn't have the most dominant figures in the dressing room on his side. By the time he got to Spurs, I think he got Kane on board very easily, but I don't think any of the others were buying what he was selling anymore because he'd come from United where things had gone toxic and fallen apart. Before that, at Chelsea, things went super toxic and fell apart. And at Real Madrid, things went nuclear and fell apart. And when he was at Real... Something changed in Mourinho. Like, the Mourinho who came back to England the second time was not the Mourinho that arrived the first time. And I should point out, at Porto as well, he got that massive buy-in. He had the right players on his side. Manish, the centre-back, whose captain, his name I can't remember, Carvalho, those guys were on his side. 
So he always had that ability to work the dressing room, work the right personalities, and get total buy-in. Instill that siege mentality, us against the world, no outside distractions. At Real Madrid, there's a different type of culture that he didn't really know what how to deal with. Like, he hadn't seen it before, where the players are celebrities rather than footballers. And when the dressing room turned against him, he didn't know how to deal with it. It had never happened to him before. And he seemed to lose some of that cocksure, you know, self-belief that he'd always had, that he carried himself with, that made him such an engaging character. And you could like him or loathe him, but you always had to admire him. When he returned to Chelsea, there was a dourness and a, and a sourness and a bitterness to him that hadn't been there before. And when that went wrong, he went to United, and even then he was less than he had been at Chelsea. By the time Spurs got him, he seemed like a broken man. Now, he goes to Roma now, and we'll see what happens there, but what, I'm, what I've spent seven or eight minutes now rambling about is basically... Mourinho arriving at Spurs, for it to work, he needed total buy-in from the dressing room. A dressing room that had completely bought into what Pochettino was doing. And a dressing room, I think, that was hurt by how the Pochettino era ended. And also a dressing room where a lot of the players were starting to look around and think, right, this is an aging team. We've maybe missed our chance to win a Premier League title here because City are back. Liverpool are incredibly strong now. You know that Chelsea will cycle back round into having a great team again. Maybe we've missed our window. Maybe that year that Leicester won it, that was our chance. And it was. They should have won it that year and somehow finished third in a in a two-horse race. But I don't think... After the way the Pochettino dismissal was handled, and especially how quickly Mourinho was appointed, I don't think the players were willing to, to trust Mourinho because they saw him as Daniel Levy's man. And they didn't have the guy who would go to bat for them anymore. They didn't have Pochettino who had previously gone to bat and gotten Levy to loosen the purse strings a couple of times, raise the wage ceiling at the club, things like that. Mourinho just wasn't interested in any of that. Didn't care about any of that. He wanted buy into the Jose way of life. So that caused turmoil. Then he gets sacked. They bring Ryan Mason in as a caretaker. Caretaker manager for two months. What about it? You into the summer. And you've got endless rumors. Oh, this manager's going to get it. Oh, no, it's this manager. No, it's this guy. Well, what about this guy? Brendan Rodgers, Eric Ten Hag, Julian Nagelsmann, Antonio Conte, Paolo Fonseca. I know I'm missing at least two others. Oh, uh, Gattuso was one and Graham Potter was the other. All of those were linked with Spurs in one shape or another. And all of them turned Spurs down. And they end up with Nuno, a manager nobody wanted. A manager who Wolves had been quite happy to push out the door. A manager who himself probably needed a break. And Nuno's got a very different way of working 
as well. But Nuno at, at Wolves was kind of able to create that siege mentality early on. And then eventually the message just wore off. But because he took the club over in the championship, he carried quite a lot of sway around the club. It was seen as a big coup for them to get him. And remember, he also had the George Mendes hookup. Doesn't have that at Spurs. You've got Paratici on board now, who has a different way of doing things. There's a conflicting message coming from Spurs. Is Levy calling the shots or is this guy calling the shots? And that's unusual for them as well. And it's as simple as looking at the team that played in 2019. Hugo Lloris played in goal. He's still there, but he is aging and he's past his best. Trippier's gone. Alderweireld's gone. Vertonghen's gone. Rose is gone. Sissoko's gone. Winks is no longer first choice. Ali, Christensen is gone. Son is there and Kane is there. There are three players from that team who are still starting. Contrast that to the Liverpool team. Allison, Trent, Matip, Van Dijk, Robertson, Henderson, Fabinho, Salah, Mane and Firmino. All still there, all still first choice. The only change is Thiago Alcantara in for Ginny Wijnaldum. You can even look at the Spurs, Spurs vet, uh, bench. Vorm is gone. Gassaniga is gone. Walker-Peters is gone. Voigt is gone. Aurier is gone. Lamella is gone. Wanyama is gone. And Lorienta is gone. You've got Mora. You've got Dyer. You've got Davies. And you've got Sanchez. So you've got eight players in total who are still at the club from that Champions League final squad which was 23 players. You've got 15 of those names gone. Manager, gone. Structure, different. There's been too much turnover. I'm all in favour of turnover of squad, but not that quickly. And you certainly can't change eight members of your first team in three years. It's not even three years, it's two seasons. Liverpool have one change. Now, Liverpool's bench is drastically different. That's worth saying as well. Uh, Gomez, Milner, Oxlade, Chamberlain and Origi are still there. Are, are still there and, and, and Kelleher as well. So you've got uh, 15 players out of 23 still there. So eight changes, but only one to the first team. Spurs, it's up and down. First team, depth, so much change. And I've said this before, I think Spurs actually do have a really good squad. There's a couple of holes in it, but for the most part, it is a really good squad. Goalkeeper, Hugo Lloris. He's not the keeper he was a few years ago, and I do think time has come to replace him, but he's still a good goalkeeper. He's still an above-average Premier League goalkeeper. He's still top 10 in the division. Gallini wouldn't be a massive fan of him, but he's a good goalkeeper. So they do have two good goalkeepers at the squad, at the club, Rob. Right-backs, proper right-backs, Emerson Royale and Doherty. My big issue with them is they're both more wing-backs than full-backs. And here's how I'm, one of the ways that, that you could solve Spurs' conundrum. Centre-backs, you've got Romero's brilliant. Sanchez is okay. Roden's decent. Davies is decent. Tanganga's got a lot of potential. Dyer is awful. 
Left backs, Regulon is fantastic, and Sessignon has a lot of promise. So you've got, but again, both of them are wing backs, they're not full backs. So why doesn't Nuno, who insisted on playing a back three at Wolves, who now has perfect wing backs, Emerson and Regulon starting, Doherty and Sessignon as depth. There's not many clubs across Europe with a better four-man core as wing-backs than that. Centre-backs you could start with. Tanganga on the right, Romero in the middle, and maybe Roden on the left. Now, I know he's right-footed, but he has played left of the three before. You would absolutely get away with that in the Premier League. Absolutely. And then you've got Davinson and Davies as two of the three backups. And then you are playing Eric Dyer as the, as the third, but he can play in the Carling or the Carabao Cup. It's fine. You would ideally look to go out in the summer and buy a left-footed centre-back centre to come in. And what you can do then is you move Roden into your backup three, and your backup three is Davinson, Roden, and Davies, and you ship Eric Dyer off into, I don't know, some sort of slavery programme in northern Siberia and just leave him up there. But you're one defender away from having what could potentially be a very, very strong defence with really good attacking wing-backs. And you've got a decent situation in goal. Now, Galini's on loan. I, I'd be letting him go back in the summer and I'd be buying someone, buying that starting goalkeeper. It's not easy. Nobody's suggesting it's an easy thing to do. But you've got all year now to plan for next summer. Goalkeeper, left side, centre back. They're your two biggest needs. In midfield, play a midfield too. Go with Heusberg and Lacelso. You've got the option of Heusberg and Endombele. In a two, as part of a four with a back three, it will work better. Endombele can have that freedom to go forward. It will be easier for Heusberg to sit with three defenders behind him, especially if they play a higher line. And if you get your your wing-backs to operate where they don't both always commit to being high up the field, if one of them plays a little bit more conservative while the other one's gone, and then they can switch roles. But you could get away with Heusberg and Endombele, Heusberg, Lacelso. Heusberg Winks can be your option if you want to maintain a lot of possession, if you want to kill off a game. Heusberg skip is maybe the option you go with if you're not expecting to have a lot of possession and you want that extra work rate in there. You play one behind two up front. You go with Delhi as your starter. You've got Endembele and Lacelso can both play that role. Then you've got Kane and Son. Now you've got backups for Son in Bergvine, Mora and Hill. You don't have that backup for Kane. That's an issue, of course. But you go in the summer and you add... Back up nine, you go. You find a Pats and Daka, find a young striker like that, a goal machine to bring in, develop for a couple of years. Worst case scenario, you sell them at a profit. Best case, they're your successor to Kane. Kareem Adeyemi would be perfect for this kind of role because he could play with Kane as well. He could play with Son. They could play Adeyemi, Kane, and Son in certain games. He would give you... Somebody of that kind of profile would be ideal. Daniel Malin was available this past summer. He would have been a really good fit. He's not a like-for-like like with Kane, 
but he could play with Kane, he could play with Son, because Son can be that nine if you need him to. But there's three needs. Now, under Nuno, is that a top four team? Maybe, maybe not. Under Conte, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. So, with the three additions, not as is currently constructed. So, Spurs aren't that far away. And I keep seeing people say, oh, they need to tear it down, break the team up, sell this player, sell that player. And I just don't think that's the answer because Delhi's been out of form for a few years now. And I'm one of his biggest fans, but I'm one of the first to say he's been out of form for a few years. But he has shown flashes this season of rediscovering something. I think if you give him a, a good manager, I think a good manager gets more from him. Endombele and Lacelso have not played for Spurs in a settled situation. Pochettino was there. He got sacked. Mourinho came in. It was never really, uh, never really a good situation under Jose. He had issues with Endombele that seemed to stretch beyond, you know, a manager football or dislike. Um, Lacelso's had some injuries. There's been a lot of nonsense for the two of them to deal with. You'd like to see how they'd work at Spurs under a real manager. Oh, and not to say Nuno's not a real manager. Nuno's a fine manager. He's just not the type of manager you want if you've got this group of players, your Spurs, and you want to play a certain style of football, and you've got ambitions of being a top-four club. But I would rather have the Spurs squad than most others in the league outside of Liverpool, Chelsea, and City. I think it's close with United because I don't think United's squad is balanced at all. Like, I, I think I've presented a fairly good case that Spurs need three players. Starting goalkeeper, starting left-side centre-back, backup striker. But I can look at that United team and say they need a starting right-back, two starting midfielders, and probably a couple of bits of depth here and there. You know? You've also got to deal with United. You've got to deal with the Pogba nonsense. You've got to deal with Cristiano. You've got to deal with De Gea and whether he decides to be good from one month to another. It's not an ideal situation at all at United. So I don't think Spurs should really be panicking into throwing the baby out with the bathwater. If they do decide to make a change from Nuno, if Nuno isn't willing to go back to what got him that job, which is playing a back three, been solid defensively and purposeful in attack, which he has the players to do right now, there's absolutely no argument to be made that any three, including Eric Dyer, any three Spurs centre-backs right now are better than the, th the three he was playing regularly at Wolves. They're all better than Willie Bolly. They're all better than Conor Cody. I would say Roman Sykes is better than Dyer and maybe better than Ben Davies. But that's not fair on Ben Davies, who's a, a natural fullback who's kind of moved across a bit. Davies is probably a better player overall, but as a centre-back, you'd probably rather have size. But they're all better than Conor Cody. All of them. Lloris is no worse than Rui Patricio. The midfield talent is better than what he had. Now, they don't have a Neves. Heusberg is a similar style of player, but not quite as good a passer, but better defensively. But they've got more midfield talent, they've got better wing-backs, and they've got better talent up front. And he he did really well with Wolves for two seasons in the Premier League. There's no excuse. There's no excuse for this at all. Um, 
he can sort this out. If he doesn't, they'll have to move on. But they don't need to move on from large chunks of this squad. This squad is still salvageable. We'll talk about Kane maybe tomorrow. I think that's one for, to do tomorrow. But for right now, the squad is, is still quite strong. Going to take a quick break. When we come back, going to play a very quick game of overrated, underrated and give you the good, the bad and the ugly from this Premier League weekend. See you in a minute. Right, welcome back. So, the good, the bad and the ugly from this Premier League weekend. The good, again, Brentford. Ivan Tony in particular is the good of this Premier League weekend. Absolutely unbelievable performance from Brentford's main man. Dominated Joel Matip, gave Van Dijk trouble, caused chaos in the Liverpool backline and was without question the man of the match in that game. Best player on the pitch on the day. Fantastic. Brentford's entire approach to the game, brilliant. Also good, West Ham. The drive and determination to continue going to the very, very end. To go and get that win, to steal that win away. Excellent. The bad Newcastle finishing. The bad Chelsea's decision to play such a defensive style of play at home. Really, really disturbing. Newcastle should have won their game comfortably. Chelsea never really put up much of a fight at home to City. The ugly, I've just been over it. That Spurs midfield, that first 40 minutes for Spurs, absolutely awful. And while doing that, I'll throw Arsenal for 40 minutes into the good. Really, really great performance in the first 40 minutes in that game. Tore Spurs apart. Could easily have been a couple more goals up. A little bit of a drop-off second half. Spurs worked their way back into the game. But for 40 minutes, Arsenal were just untouchable in that game. Right. Overrated, underrated. Very simple. Most overrated player, most underrated player at each Premier League club. I am rushing through this because I do have another podcast to do. So apologies, but I'm going to go through this quickly. Liverpool, most overrated player, Jordan Henderson. Held up as some sort of beacon of light. In truth, the 11th best player in the Liverpool team. Underrated, Mo Salah. The best wide forward or winger the Premier League has ever seen. You show me your numbers, I'll show you mine, and mine are better. Manchester City, overrated, Jack Grealish. 100 million? Absolutely not. Underrated, Alexander Zinchenko. Quality midfield player who has very excitedly become a very good left-back option for City. Not always a starter, but when called upon, now a plus player, no longer a negative impact player as he was a couple of years ago. Chelsea, overrated. Mason Mount, good player. No, I'm wrong. Reese James, good player, not a great player. Hyped as a great player. Hyped as better than Trent Alexander-Arnold. Not even close. Underrated Mason Mount. Doesn't always get the attention he deserves. Now, some people say, well, he's Frank Lampard's favourite. He's Southgate's favourite. There's a reason for that. 
he does so much for the team that when he's missing, you realise what he does. Mason Mount, Chelsea's most underrated player. Manchester United overrated Cristiano Ronaldo. People still believe he's the player he was five years ago. He's not. Underrated? I still think it's Luke Shaw. Great season last year. Not the best left back in the league. And that little aspect of people that say he is are overrating him. But he is a very, very good left back. And has been for a number of years. Everton. Overrated Jordan Pickford. How is this man England's number one? Underrated Mason Holgate. Best pure defender at the club. Always reliable. Reliable. Can play multiple positions across the back line. And can do a job at holding midfield. Brighton and Hove Albion. Overrated. Tariq Lamptey. Really exciting player going forward. Can't defend. Small sample size yet to know exactly what he is. And now that players have more of an idea of what he is, and also the physical issues, he might not be as strong a player as he was. It's not Adam Lallana because nobody rates him anymore. Underrated player at Brighton, it's Yves Basima. I underrated him. Everybody underrates him. He's one of the best midfield players in the league. West Ham United, overrated Declan Rice. The asking price says it all. Good player, not a great player. Underrated his buddy in midfield, Thomas Suchek. The real star of that midfield. Top class player. Aston Villa. Overrated Tyron Mings. One of the worst centre-backs in the league. Underrated Esri Konza, who carries them up and down the field every single game while somehow getting overlooked for the England squad. Brighton. No, Brentford. Overrated. I will go Mbwomo, who was often hyped as on the same level as Watkins and Benrama. He has the talent to get there. He's just not there yet, but he is a good player. Underrated Norgard. Excellent holding midfielder. Very clever use of the ball. Arsenal. Overrated Ben White. Never a £50 million defender. A lot of holes in his game. He's got a lot of learning to do, but he'll have time to do so at Arsenal. Underrated, it's Emile Smith-Rowe. How is this guy not being talked about among the elite English talents? He is every bit as talented as any other player England can call on right now. Sensational player. Tottenham, overrated. Eric Dyer, how is he a football player at this point? He, the guy can't play, he can't move. Reads the game dreadfully. Positional sense of a chair. Awful. Underrated. I'll go Ollie Skip. No, you know what? I'm going to go Hyung Min Son here. Because he's always overlooked in talk of the best left wingers in the league. And he is the best left winger in the league. Uh, Watford having the breeze. I will say overrated. Ishmael Asar by certain factions of certain fan bases who think he's the answer to all the problems he's a good player very very talented still very raw still a lot to do underrated i'll go emmanuel dennis just looks a very good player and doesn't get talked about enough leicester city overrated yannick vestigard it needs to be said no more he's not a good defender and brendan rogers bought a pumpkin underrated harvey barnes Again, like Smith-Rowe, he's, he's older than Smith-Rowe, obviously, but he's so often overlooked. How is he not part of the England setup? He's an outstanding player. 
Wolves, overrated Connor Cody, guy can't defend, he's got England caps, it's madness. Underrated Ruben Neves, it's in part because he stayed at Wolves too long, in part because he stagnated, but he is a top-class midfielder who deserves to be in a top team. Crystal Palace, overrated is still Wilf Zaha. Wilf Zaha is not a world-class footballer, but he is a very good one. But he's a very good one in that setup where the team is built around him and he can do what he wants to a large extent. Underrated, I'll go Conor Gallagher. What a player that kid is. Very unfortunate that he likely has no future at Chelsea purely because of the policies at Chelsea and the fact that he's not a big enough name. But that guy can play for pretty much any team in the league. Really, really good player. Whoever buys him next summer, and I hope it will be Palace, will get a great player. Southampton, overrated. James Ward-Prowse, good player, not a great player. Overrated because of his set pieces. Underrated Bednarak. Now, I know he didn't look particularly good in the Jimenez goal at the weekend. That guy's a very good defender who could play for a better team. Newcastle, overrated. Does anyone rate any Newcastle players anymore? Does anyone rate any Newcastle players anymore? That is a question. I will go ahead and say that Callum Wilson's a little bit overrated. He's a good striker, but this idea that, you know, I've seen Liverpool fans say they should have bought him. I've seen City fans suggest that maybe Callum Wilson might be a good option if we can't get Kane. He's not that level. Underrated at Newcastle, I think it's Isaac Hayden. I think he's a tremendous ball winner in midfield. Uh, Leeds United, overrated, Liam Cooper. The guy's not a Premier League centre-back. Underrated, Patrick Bamford. Said it since, said it, been saying that about a year now. You'd like him to be 10% better at everything, and if he was, he'd be seen as one of the best strikers in the country. But he's really good with no weaknesses to his game. Burnley, overrated. Ashley Barnes. At this point, I think the Premier League is a step too far for him. I think he's a championship player now. He's been a great servant to them, but I just think the game's gone a little bit beyond him. He's lost a bit of his mobility. Underrated. I really like Westwood in midfield. He's a lovely, neat and tidy footballer. Rarely makes mistakes. Always in the right position. Tracks his runners well. Wins the ball a lot. Does exactly what the team needs him to do. Really like Ashley Westwood. Uh, Norwich City. Overrated Grant Hanley. Championship player. I'm sorry. End of story. Underrated. Uh, Max Ahrens has become underrated. It's amazing to me. Max Ahrens has the talent to be England's second best right back after Trent. And yet doesn't get mentioned in conversations with Rhys James, Terry Glamty. Even Wan-Bissaka gets talked about him beforehand. That guy can't play. So, yeah, Max Ahrens. That's overrated, underrated for today. That's the show, folks. Uh, was going to do the gossip. Don't have time. We've got Premier League action tonight. You've got two teams and two games involving Premier League teams. Liverpool play Porto. And if you want the Oil Classico, it's PSG versus Manchester City. To see which fan base ends up crying the most. Um, both should be good games. There's a slate of decent games tonight. Milan Atletico, if you're looking for a game from a neutral perspective, that could be a good one. If you're looking for an early game, I'd suggest Shakhtar versus Inter. Though Ajax Besiktas will always be interesting because Ajax are always interesting to watch. That's me. That's the show. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. 
Social Podcast Network.